glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Let's stand then, please. Galatians chapter 2, <clears throat> beginning verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew... Livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews. Why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Who were who are who are Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Thank you. You may be seated. A mouthful is spoken there. Uh, because it all is in context with each other, we're going we're gonna to seek to finish this out, this chapter tonight, with three points from verses 11 down through verse 21, uh, beginning with some overlap and review from Paul's confrontation with Peter there in verses 11 through 15, You notice this, one of the things that happens today under the dispensation of grace is if you begin to speak as though there is distinct right and wrong, someone will cry legalism. As though what the grace came to do is blur all lines of right and wrong. You understand Paul, based on the truth of the gospel, is telling Peter your behavior is Wrong. Doesn't that make Paul a legalist while he's dealing with legalism? It gives us some definition of what legalism is. Legalism is not the ability to make a judgment between right or wrong. In fact, the gospel makes that much simpler. The law, you had to memorize the law and memorize all the technicalities of the law. It became extremely burdensome to try to keep the law because of sin. You could not. But under grace, we're forgiven. What Paul is saying is your conduct, Peter does not line up with your convictions. Your conduct is not consistent with what you say is true. You see, truth determines right and wrong. And the truth is, the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God justifies you. Your faith in Christ is counted from God's standpoint, according to His Word. Your faith in Jesus Christ gives you righteousness. So you're not trying to be righteous. You've received righteousness. If that's true, and it is, that ought to mean certain things in our life. 
Meaning there are certain things I do today not because I'm trying to be righteous, but because I know I am. I don't operate from the standpoint of trying to be justified. I operate from the truth that God says I am. Therefore, as a justified person, I must live an appreciative life. If I am freed from the power of sin, then it is not appropriate that any sin should have bearing over my life. And so we operate from the standpoint of taking God at His word. God says, you put your faith in my son, I'll clear your guilt and sin. That's a promise, amen? And it's a promise we rest our eternity on. But here's what happens. When you get a hold of that truth that you are justified by faith in Christ, meaning salvation is something God does for you, not something you're doing for him, there is tremendous freedom in that. Uh, That's why liberty is one of the themes in the book of Galatians. Not liberty to go live according to the flesh. And he'll deal with that. Liberty now to do right because I know I am a child of God. But if I've got to go back under the law, I'm constantly back in this frame of doubt. Am I doing enough? Am I keeping it correctly? Because the truth is you can't. And so then Paul begins to deal with this fact that here's Peter. What the gospel says is you are saved by faith in Christ whether you're a sinful Jew or a sinful Gentile. What had happened prior to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is you understand the law said Jews were not allowed to eat with Gentiles. And there was a despite for the Gentiles that had crept into the hearts of the Jewish people. There was a pride that said, we have the law. That means we're the righteous people. You remember, God had told the nation of Israel, I did not bring you out of Egypt and bring you into Canaan because you're good. And I'm paraphrasing it. But I didn't do it because of you. I did it because I'm good. And I did it because of the evil of the people of the land. So God was warning them, don't think that my blessings and my grace in your life is because of your righteousness. You're a stiff neck and a stubborn people. That's what God said to his own people. So don't think that I'm blessing you with the land of Canaan and giving you victory because of your own righteousness. That's under the law God said that. I'm doing it because I'm righteous and because these people are wicked and I'm using you to drive them out. So you appreciate that. But over time, the Jewish people, they would not fraternize with the Samaritans and they would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. And, and, and that was part of God's law. But the fact of the matter is that in that despite, when Gentiles began to get saved, read the book of Acts, it filled the Jews with envy. Because God is saying, I'm treating everyone on a level plane. You either trust my son, and if you do, you're justified. It doesn't matter if you're a pork-eating Gentile or you are a a kosher Jew. It doesn't matter. You're, You're justified by faith in my son. And the Judaizers that you'll find in Acts 15, other places, they did not like that. It was Paul's own countrymen that gave him the hardest time. They would be fine. You'd notice they'd be fine as long as he was preaching to them. The moment he preached that the Gentiles could have the same salvation they did. You can read in Acts 13. You can read in Acts all the way through the book of Acts. The moment, all the way through the end of the book of Acts into chapter 28. The moment they would hear that God in in the Old Testament had prophesied that he would open the door of salvation to the Gentiles without the works of the law, they would be filled with envy and begin to persecute. And therefore, there was a concerted effort to overthrow this gospel message that put the sinful Gentiles, the sinners of the Gentiles, on the same plane as the Jewish people who had the law. And they, they believed, really to be saved, we've got to make you back into a Jew. You've got to go back under the law. And so then, throughout your New Testament, you're going to find that false doctrine of either salvation by works 
or salvation by grace and works being refuted. Romans makes it clear. There is no gospel of grace plus works. We now make, Let us be very clear. Good works have a place in the life of a Christian. But they have nothing to do with justification. That's the clarity of this. Legalism. Let's be very clear. Legalism teaches either, and that Bible, the way it's not a Bible word, but the fact is it teaches you obtain justification with God by the works you do. That you either obtain it by works or you keep it by works. Grace says you obtain justification with God by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's what Paul begins to deal with here, the Holy Spirit, through Paul. So let's back up to verses 11 through 15 where Paul begins to confront Peter, verses 11 through 15. He says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. So if you're taking notes, this point is called an appropriate confrontation. Because he was to be blamed, verse 12, for before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, meaning he treated Gentile believers like he treated Jewish believers. He said, you know what? The gospel says our relationship is not based on how you keep the law. Our relationship is based upon what you believe about Jesus Christ. And if you've come to realize that you can be saved through faith in Christ alone, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, I can eat with you. And so Peter was there eating with the Gentiles as brethren because if the gospel's true, then you can do that. Did Peter need to worry? You remember when God told Peter the four corners of that sheet let down? And he said, rise and eat. And Peter said, Lord, I've not been defiled since my youth. And the Bible, God told Peter, don't call unclean what I call clean. Now, was, it, was that about trying to get Peter to eat a bunch of meat? Or was it about the fact that a Gentile was about to send for him and say, come into my home and preach to me? And, and Peter would have prior to that said, I won't go into the home of a Gentile. But God said, I'm, cha- I'm changing that. Through the gospel, that middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down and now you will all be members of the same family, the same body as we saw this morning through faith in Jesus Christ. And that alone, that alone. And so Peter had gotten a hold of that and realized, I am I am now able to have fellowship with the Gentile through our mutual faith in Jesus Christ. And he was doing that, he said before, this certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come... He withdrew himself, withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, meaning their conduct did not match the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. It didn't match. And so he says, when I saw that, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles, meaning before you were living just like the Gentiles did, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Why through your action are you teaching them to go back and become Jews, Peter? Why are you doing that? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners as the Gentiles. And we'll stop reading there for the moment. And what we see in this, number one, is Peter's inconsistency, which we've pointed out. What he was doing is saying, Gentiles are as righteous as the Jews. That's the message he preached. That's the message Paul preached until those who didn't believe that showed up. Now, I want to to take a moment. Maybe I did this last week, but I want to take a moment to reemphasize. It does us well to pay attention. Do we change our behavior when we are around people who don't believe the truth of the gospel? Are there times when there are people, uh, perhaps, let me give you an, exa- an example. We might know people that believe you cannot be justified except 
you believe on Christ and are water baptized, meaning they believe water baptism is part of our justification. And they're going to believe that firmly, and they're going to give you flack over that. And this is what it would look like if we're around people like that, and you are, uh, you've just led someone to the Lord, and you're calling that person you've led to the Lord brother. Yet he's not been baptized yet, but he has made an, a, a clear profession of faith in Christ. And you're saying, brother, I'm so glad that you've gotten saved. And then all of a sudden these water baptizers show up, which we are, but not for justification. And they show up and they say, so who's your friend here? You say, well, um, uh, this, is, this is a guy I met and was witnessing to, hoping he'll get saved. And the guy says, Open, I'll get saved. You know I called on Christ. Well, I, I know, but do you, uh, you know, we have hope for your salvation. And these guys that say, be baptized, be saved, say, well, tell us about him. We'd love to, we'd love to see him join the family of God. And you say, well, I've witnessed to him and he's prayed and, and, and professed Christ, but you know he hasn't been baptized yet. And they say, right, right. Brother, you, you know, friend, you need to get baptized so you can get saved and, all of a sudden, that guy's standing there thinking, I thought I was saved a few minutes ago, but now I'm not. That's what Peter did. He's treating Gentiles like brethren until these Judaizers show up who said, unless you circumcise your children, and circumcision here being more than just that, it is a symbol of being a keeper of the Old Testament law. You're not really saved, meaning Jesus came to bring you back under the law. And that's not at all the way it works. And so Peter's conduct was a direct and blatant contradiction of what he was preaching. May I say this? You know around here we preach the truth that Christians ought to live separated lives. But let me say something. I believe with every fiber of my being, you are not justified by separation. I don't care what people accuse us of believing. That is not true. People who don't want to to believe that truth will accuse of that. But may I say this? If someone comes in here and they got tattoos up and down their bodies and they got rings in their nose and they come to repentance and faith in Christ with their tattoos and with their rings, I'm going to acknowledge them as a brother. Because they're not saved by cleaning up. God will clean them up. The fact is the moment they come to faith in Christ, they're born again. We have somebody that's in the jail and they give a, a, a credible profession of faith. They say, I have believed. I'm going to begin to treat that person like a brother. Because of the word of God. They don't, have to, they don't have to be so far along before we say, okay, now you're saved. And if we behave differently, you know what happens? We give new believers doubt. They should be getting assurance from God's word. And instead they're getting doubt. And you know, you know good and well, we believe in holy living, but holy living doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Amen? And when we treat people, well, yes, you're a believer, but you're not saved because... And I don't want to undermine the teaching of godly living, but I won't. Godly living doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Faith in Him saves you. And what a new believer in Christ needs is assurance. You are justified by faith in Christ. It's from that standpoint the cleansing can come. It's from that standpoint godly living is developed. But the fact is... Peter here behaves like these men are lost, whereas a few minutes more he behaved like they were saved. And Paul says that wasn't right. So we see Peter's inconsistency in verses 11 and 12. Let's think about the practicality of what he did. All he did is stop eating with some men he was eating with before. Is that the worst thing in the world? And we would do well to to grow in our ability to make judgments as Christians. I began to say this a minute ago. You and I need to think about what message does my action send? 
If we meet someone that does not believe you're saved by faith in Christ, we dealt with this a little bit last week. Someone says, no, I believe that you're saved by faith in Christ plus, and yet we continue to treat them as a brother when we know. Now, that's, that person can be confused. I get all of that. But when we deal with, for instance, a Catholic as though they are a believer in Christ, and we know they adhere to Catholicism, are we not sending the same message Peter did? There's two sides to this coin. He was treating believers like they were unbelievers. He's treating Judaizers like they're believers. And he's treating these new believers like they're unbelievers. And Paul said, that's not right. He was treating those who were preaching a false gospel better than those who believed the true gospel. We see that pressure on us today to do the same thing. Uh, so Peter's inconsistency is seen in verses 11 and 12 in that he is gravitating toward the people he feared the most. You know what that's called? It's called intimidation. Can I, can I help us if you'll let me tonight? Some of the most intimidating people in the world are people who've rejected the truth of God's word and are trying to peddle something else. They cannot persuade you by genuine persuasion of just truth, so they have to persuade you by intimidating you. If you don't agree with me, I'll mock you. If you don't agree with me, we'll call you names. If you don't agree with me, we'll tell you you're not really a Christian. If you don't agree with me, we'll do that. We'll, we'll intimidate you. You see what happened with Peter? The Bible says he feared those that came from James. They were notorious for being contentious. Notorious. That's what they did in Acts 15. Paul said we had no small Barnabas and he dissension with these people. They came preaching, you have to be saved by works, and we had no small confrontation. Then they went up to... Jerusalem, I'll be honest with you. How many of you enjoy confrontation? I believe this. If you're truly saved, you don't enjoy it. If you enjoy confrontation, you probably need to get some things right with God. Honestly. Only by pride cometh contention. But confrontation in the Christian life, is it's, it, it cannot be avoided. And I believe there are men who are they're sinful men. They're men who are unrepentant men, and they know that. They enjoy confrontation, and they enjoy getting people to get on their side by intimidation. Paul had to tell Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. May, may I say something? And this is instructive. We don't go out in this community and try to win people to Christ by calling people names. If we can't persuade with the truth of the gospel, then let's not persuade at all. We all need a reminder of that. It's a temptation to try to do the work of God in the power of the flesh, and that's wrong. I don't believe, and there's a brand of preaching where you get in the pulpit and call people a bunch of names all the time. That's not God's way. Do what Jesus called people names. Well, he's Jesus. <laughs> Amen. There may be a time and a place for pointing out truth, but the fact of the matter is we can get in the flesh, and here's men who are fleshly trying to get people to go back under performance of the flesh instead of faith in the Word of God. And what happens is Paul says Peter's conduct was inconsistent with what Peter knew to be true. And so then there was an appropriate confrontation from Paul to Peter. And we see Peter's inconsistency, verses 11 and 12. Peter's influence, verses 12 and 13. The influence upon him and the influence from him. Notice this. Peter's an influential man. He always is throughout the scripture. It says, For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Verse 13, and the other Jews, so not these Judaizers who came, but the other Jews that were there with Peter, dissembled likewise, notice the next two words, 
with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. When we start compromising truth, it becomes contagious. Peter does first. He lets the, 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 the promoters of error intimidate him away from standing on truth. And when he dissimulated, the other Jews followed suit. And then when they dissimulated, even Barnabas got caught up in it. There are those today who know better on a number of issues doctrinally, but there's pressure. Jim showed me a thing earlier before church about uh, out of the book of Ephesians. hope you don't mind me using this as an illustration. The introductory page says that the Word of God is pure and the Word of God is powerful. All it was true. And then it goes on to say, and uh, no Bible translation is perfect. And so we you know, pray God uses this imperfect translation of pure, powerful words from God. What a contradictory statement. I mean, just, do you know how many sincere people have gotten caught up in that th- thinking today? Now, I can tell you, one of the number one methods used to get you to move away from believing your Bible is perfect is not facts. It's name-calling. Name-calling. You're a cultist. You're this. You're, you're, you're one of those Ruckmanites. You're a, you're a, you know, you're a, you just fill in, I mean, name-calling, ridicule, that's narrow-minded, old-fashioned. Where have you been? Uneducated, foolish. You go on and on. Now I say this, take the Bible and convince me why I should believe that there's no perfect translations and I'll change my view. But that doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Why would the Bible say don't trust the Bible? <laughs> the very Word of God is filled. You know what they said? The Bible is the Word of God and it's not perfect. That's what that pamphlet said. Now, how did so many people, by the way, that seems to be the common position today, that we do not have the perfect word of God on earth today because all we have is translations. So the best we have is man's effort to get God's word to us. May I say this? If you, there could be somebody in this room, that's your position. You, it shouldn't be. That's not supposed to be a position of any member of this church, but someone may have gotten deceived about that and think, well, I don't think we have the perfect word of God. You didn't arrive there by believing the Bible, I promise you. You arrive there by someone intimidating you into believing that. And by the way, on the other side, we who believe the Word of God is perfect. You know where I want to convince from? The Word of God. It's Jesus that said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. It's Christ that said that. That's not some man that said that. You say, what's the point here tonight? I'm trying to say, don't ever change what you believe or the conduct attached to your belief by people who are intimidating you by people who are mocking, ridiculing, making fun. That's not the way God's going to lead your life. Can we, can we agree with that? When Peter wanted to, when Paul was ready to influence Peter, did he, did he stand back and, and say, you know, let me just tell you what an idiot Peter is. Who did he talk to? Uh, Peter. He went right up and said, Peter, i got a problem with what you're doing. His approach was honest. His approach is humble. He's the one that's going to have to take flack for what he's about to do. Don't you think Paul knew he's going to take some flack for what he's about to do? Truth is worth defending. So we find an appropriate confrontation because of Peter's inconsistency and because of Peter's influence, we find Peter having to be illuminated and God uses Paul to do that. Verse 15, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly, Paul says, I saw them changing their conduct, not for God, not for truth, but for men they were afraid of. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all. He said, I didn't pull him off the side. There are some would take fault with this. Why did he do that? He's supposed to talk to him one-on-one. This was not a personal trespass. It wasn't a trespass against Paul. Had Peter dissimulated before all? 
was he influencing all? Then he needed to be confronted before all. You're, you're, getting, a, you're getting people to go astray, Peter. And so uh, when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, and he asked a question, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles, uh-oh, Peter's in trouble now. He didn't want the, the fellows from James to find this out. Remember when they came, he changed his behavior? So Paul just points out, Peter, a few minutes ago, you were, you were eating with them and eating and living after their manner. Why are you now trying to get them to be like the Jews? And not as do the Jews. Why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Verse 14. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. There seems to be some, maybe some righteous sarcasm there. The Gentiles were considered greater sinners than the Jews. So we who are Jews by nature, we were born that way and not sinners of the Gentiles. So why are you trying to get these Gentiles who come to faith in Christ to live as we Jews who are Jews by nature? What he's pointing out, seems to me, to Peter, is you falling back into that, that mentality of despising them when you ought not be. Ten minutes ago, you didn't despise them, but you do now. And he's pointing out Peter was being hypocritical, and so Peter gets some illumination. And that brings us into Paul's uh, his defense for the truth that he's dealing with, verses 16 through 18. He says to Peter, knowing, why do you do this? Knowing, Peter, you know this that a man is not justified by the works of the law. You are not made righteous by your performance of God's law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Notice this, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified we've all heard someone say well you do have to trust christ and keep the commandments now we should trust christ and if we trust christ we should keep his commandments and you will not get saved without trusting christ but you will be saved without keeping the commandments you're encouraging disobedience no i'm not i'm saying commandment keeping doesn't justify you faith in jesus christ justifies you and thereby enables you to keep the commandments. Let me ask you something. What if someone has truly trusted Christ, but is not perfectly keeping the commandments? By the way, which commandments? If you're going to keep them, you've got to keep them all. All. So you're either justified by your perfect commandment keeping, or you're condemned by your imperfect commandment keeping. And that's what the law does. It condemns us. The law doesn't save anybody. It condemns. The law does not give life. It gives death. We'll see that in a minute. You know, the Ten Commandments. People say, oh, we need the Ten Commandments back in our culture. I agree, we do. So we can go around killing some people. You can't get resurrected until you're dead. Amen? Getting saved is a resurrection. The law proved you guilty. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. And so... Paul deals with now in verses 16 18 and a, through 18 an absolute conviction. He says, let's lay down a fact. Peter, you know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. No man is proven to God he's righteous by doing, keeping the law. But by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I, I've, I've dealt with this before, but uh, go, go over to Romans chapter 4, if you would, where this is spelled out in the book of Romans. Romans deals so much with the subject of justification. So let's, let's, let's define that term again. I'm not going to give you a 
rigid definition from the dictionary, but as we look at the term justification, it deals with being dealt with as though you've never sinned. It is not guilty in the sight of God. So then, justification is being cleared of all my transgressions. I have a record with God of complete innocence. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Justification, the clearing of all guilt legally before God. Romans chapter 4 gets, is so explicitly clear. How many of us can agree before the law was written and God the Holy Spirit through the pen of Paul is very wise in the examples he gives us. Before the law of, written, of God was written, there was a man named Abraham. How many of us can study the life of Abraham just a little bit and know that he broke the law? I had my Bible reading this week twice. He lied about Sarah saying she was not his wife, and he did so to save his own hide. The Bible makes it very clear. He was afraid that they would kill him for her. So better her be taken, possibly defiled and hurt, and me protected. Now here's a man who was living by faith at the time, but he still was making some decisions in the flesh. He also took his handmaid, Hagar, to be his concubine, obeying his wife instead of God. That was not a decision of faith. It was a decision of flesh. So if you're saved by keeping the law, Abraham is not a just man. But he was justified. Then God gives us the account of David. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Was David a saved man? Is David in heaven today? Why? By faith. People have a hard time with this. But it's so simple. Let's read Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, justified by works, works what we do for God. If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Meaning him taking God at his word equated to him being righteous. Verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. That is such a key verse in your Bible. Him, him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. When you go to work, many of you are going to go to work tomorrow. You're going to put in a number of hours. Your workplace owes you a certain level of compensation. If they don't give it to you, they're crooks. But if someone in the church tonight walks up, shakes your hand, and leaves a $100 bill in your hand, that was grace. You didn't get that because of what you did. You got that because of what they've done. Salvation, God makes it clear. Justification is not of works. No man is made clear in the sight of God of his guilt by what he does, but by what God does on his behalf. It's of grace, meaning... God giving us what we've not earned. Verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness on the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? Me on Jews only or Gentiles as well? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? 
when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision. Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. So if circumcision is somehow some, some means of God's grace, some work whereby you obtain favor with God, that doesn't line up because God counted Abraham righteous before circumcision. And then you can see how much this was being taught. We do it this way today. If you are saved by water baptism, please explain Cornelius. Cornelius had never been water baptized and he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 10. And so the thief on the cross. Do you know how much work Adventists do and how much work Church of Christ do to do away with the message of the thief on the cross? They focus on a comma in that verse that's not there that they say should be there. What an interesting thing. You know why? Because if the thief on the cross was justified in the sight of God, it proves you're not saved by Sabbath keeping. You're not saved by water baptism. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Plus nothing, minus nothing. Hear me tonight. Any other gospel is false. I don't care how good the people are that hold that false gospel. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how religious they are. I don't care what good works they do. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. Meaning we're saved by Him and what He's done, not by us and what we do. I praise God for good works, but good works cannot justify man. You know, that's what Paul was saying. He said, Peter, I need to remind you of a fact in Galatians chapter 2. A fact that Peter knew, a fact that Peter believed. But Peter, as many of us, got caught up. He got caught up with some intimidating people preaching a false gospel. I believe there's a number of saved people that have gotten entangled and caught up with a lot of these false gospel preachers. They've heard this. Maybe they've been uh, somebody knocked on their door and intimidated. I don't know how it worked, but the fact of the matter is, Paul says again, Spirit of God, by Paul, verse 16, knowing, knowing, not thinking, maybe, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Verse 17, we're moving on here. The fact he deals with in verse 16, the fallacy he deals with in verses 17 and 18. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. He's tagging that back to verse 15 when he talks about sinners of the Gentiles. He said, we've seen Gentiles as sinners, and if while we are seeking to be justified by Christ, we find out, oh, we're sinners just like them. Meaning, we need a Savior. We who are circumcised need a Savior just as bad as they do. This is what Romans 2 is all about. Romans 1 and Romans 2. If you're telling others to keep the law while you're breaking it, you're a hypocrite. And that's what Paul is saying. Peter, you are going back to the hypocrisy of Judaism in the first place. It tells Gentiles, it's what the Pharisees did. Ooh, he's eating with publicans and... What's the insinuation of that statement? We're not sinners. Why? Because we fast, we tithe, we're circumcised, we have the, the scriptures... We go to synagogue, we keep the Sabbath, and you're filled with pride and adultery and covetousness and hatred for your neighbor. You tell me which is worse, breaking the Sabbath day or hating your neighbor. That's exactly what Jesus preached. And he wasn't saying, well, because 
they hate you, you know, because they break the Sabbath, that gives you a right to hate your neighbor. No, 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 no. You're condemned because you hate your neighbor, and you're condemned because you won't rest in God's promises. You're all condemned. Therefore, you all need mercy. And what Peter, Paul's bringing up is says, hey, if when, while seeking to be justified by Christ, you know, there were those that came to Christ thinking he would justify them, like the rich young ruler. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was like many a young man. I already know I'm good. I just want to hear somebody else affirm it. And he says, well, keep the commandments. And he says, which? And he says, well, honor your father and this. Oh, I've kept all those from my youth. Oh, well, then sell what you have and give the poor and come follow me. And in that moment, he committed idolatry, loved his money more than Jesus Christ and rebelled against Christ, disobeyed him and walked away. Eh. You know what? While seeking to be justified by Christ, he found that he himself was a a sinner. He says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found to be sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? Was it Christ that made us sinners? That's the question. Did, did Christ make us sin? No, no, no. God forbid. He says, verse 18, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. If I say, let's say I'm a building inspector and I go along and someone says, uh, hey, about this building, I say, you know, this building needs to be demolished. It's, it is not fit to stand. It's no good to anybody. It's going to cave in someday. And they bring in a wrecking crew and they break down a wall. And while they're breaking down the wall, I go down to the bank and get a loan and buy the property and pull the crane off and start rebuilding the wall they just broke down. You know what I'm saying? I lied when I said it was no good and need to be condemned. I make myself a transgressor. You know what Peter was doing? You're building again what's been torn down. The law proved none of us can keep it. It proved we're all sinners. And now you acknowledge there, Peter, I heard you when we stood at Antioch and when you gave your testimony of how the sheet was let down by four corners that you knew the law was not given to save men, but by the faith of Christ alone. Now you're rebuilding what you said was to be torn down. This doesn't make sense. You're making yourself a transgressor. You're doubling back and redoing what you've torn down. And so it's not Christ's because the accusation was, Paul, the grace you're preaching is encouraging sin. No, no, no. Christ is not the minister of sin. We're the sinners. That's why we need Christ. So he's pointing back to the Lord Jesus Christ. The fallacy in Peter was, hey, you're building again what you tore down. The error, Peter, lies with you. Christ is not the problem here. The problem is sinful men. So an appropriate confrontation led to the the giving of an absolute conviction. We're not justified by the works of the law. We're justified by the faith of Christ. And when we begin to go back, see, this helps us understand what's going on in Galatia. They were saying, as having faith in Christ, we've got to go back to keeping the law. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's behind us. That's behind us. We're justified by faith in Christ. Then thirdly, in verses 19 through 21, he gives some applied conclusion to it. Verses 19 through 21. Then he explains, for I, he's going to turn to himself, for I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I read an illustration uh, this weekend by um, M.R. Dehan on this verse. It's very good. He's talking about a man that's been convicted of a crime. And he gave two illustrations. I'm just going to repeat his illustrations. They were so well. I won't try to add to them. They were just, they were very, very appropriate. A man's been convicted of murder 
or he's in the process of being convicted to murder. He's brought on to the stand, and while he's sitting there on the, on the, on the stand being sentenced, he's been found guilty by a jury, and he's going to be sentenced by the judge. And while he's there, he has a heart attack and kills over dead. Are they going to say, okay, take his dead body and let's get it to prison? Or are they going to say, case closed, the law has done its job? The law has no more it can do here. The man is dead. We can't prosecute. You don't pro- law does not prosecute dead men. You have a man that somebody says, you know what? I'm angry at this neighbor of mine. He stole everything I have. I want to press charges. And the police say, okay, what's his name? They give his name. They say, oh, well, he died last year. I want to press charges anyway. You can't press charges on a dead man. Then he gave a better illustration. He says, you have a man, and he's been condemned, and instead of keeling over on the... Uh, on the on the judgment stand, he's taken and condemned to be hanged by the neck. And they take him to the gallows. He's a murderer. They put him up on that gallows and they hang him until he's dead. They remove his body. The law has done its job. It has been satisfied. Two days later, you find that man walking down the street, raised from the dead. And someone runs down to the judge and says, we have a murderer walking our street. And they give his name. They say, well, he's, he was hanged. Nonetheless, he's walking our street, and he said, nothing we can do. The law did all I can do. It killed him. The justice has been satisfied. That's what Paul's saying. I, through the law, am dead to the law. The law's intent is to kill you. In fact, it's to prove that you're dead. The intent of the law was never to be a means whereby we can attain the righteousness of God. The law was given that sin might abound that we might recognize how sinful we are. I'll give you one more illustration. I don't remember where I read this. The law is like this. It's like an x-ray machine. Let's say I'm in a car accident and I can't walk. And they take me into the hospital and put me in a CAT scan. Then they run an x-ray. And they say, based on the, the x-ray and the CAT scan we're looking at, we find that you have three broken vertebrae. And I said, but I still can't walk. Well, of course you can't. You have three broken, broken vertebrae. Well, what good was an x-ray machine? If it tells me I have a broken back, I could have guessed at that. I knew I had something wrong with me. What good is that CAT scan, that x-ray machine? I came out worse than I went in. I said, no, you didn't. You just came out with more knowledge of what bad shape you're in. Now what you need is a physician to work on your back and repair you. That's the law. It shows you what's wrong with you. It doesn't fix you. You know what Peter's saying? Just go back to tell you, seeing what's wrong with you. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's done its job. Once the law has led you to Christ, you know what the cross of Christ does? At the cross of Christ, you're killed for your sin. By faith, his death is imparted to you. That's what brings us to Galatians 2.20. He says in verse 19, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might what? Live unto God. Wait a minute. How do dead men live? You realize... To believe the gospel, you have to believe in a miracle-working God. You have to believe in, 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 in the resurrection. You can't just believe Jesus died. You must believe in the resurrection or it's of no good. It's of no avail to us. He says, Paul says in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Remember, he died for our sin. Paul says, I believe with all my heart that when Jesus died on the cross, it was in my place. And by faith, His death is imparted to me. God sees that I have been killed for my transgressions. 
The law has done its job. It condemned me and it killed me, but in the person of Christ, His death imparted to me. I am crucified with Christ. He says, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul is so explaining what Christ did on the cross. When I believe that He died for me and I put my trust in His death, I am, I am in the sight of God and in my own conscience I have been killed for my sins. And that's all the law can do. Prove that I'm a sinner. Execute judgment on me. My trust and reception of the work of Christ on the cross finishes what the law demands. Death for transgression. The wages of sin is death. So when I put my trust in Christ, I've received my wages. Now I'm raised to walk in Newness of life. The old man, may I say this, you're saved night. You are a new person. Don't let your old record hang over you. The law has been satisfied. Satan says, well, you're just a fornicator. No, I'm not. That guy's crucified. I'm a, I'm a clean man. Well, don't you remember you've done X, Y, and Z? Yes, but that's already been punished in the person of Christ. The law's already done its work on me. Now, I have, the, I have the liberty to live clean and pure because I have been punished fully for my sins. You see, Satan uses guilt not to release you from sin, but to keep you in it. Please hear what I just said. He uses guilt. You know what guilt will do? Well, it's what I am anyway. I might as well just do it. I can't overcome it. I might as well give in. I've done it so many times. Might as well just, you know, what's the hope? What's the use? You know what the gospel do? You know what? You get enough guilt, you say, I just deserve to die. If you've not been there, I hope you don't get there. But sin will get you there. I just deserve to die. You know what? People commit suicide generally. Either smell the sin or their own or both. Just piling up on them. You know what the cross will do? It will deal with your guilt. I deserve to die. And God says, you have in Christ. I, by the way, a lot of people can't accept the gospel because they don't think they deserve to be crucified. I do. I deserve to be pinned on that tree, but I don't have to be. He did it for me. I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live. Yet not I. I was put to death, my flesh, no good. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, my faith is not in my ability to perform. My faith is in the person who has performed. My faith is in his death. My faith is in his life. Hear me tonight. There's victory, my friend. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. You get focusing on your ability to perform for God and you will be in despair. But you get focused on Jesus Christ who's already performed. He took what you deserve and he gives you what you don't and that's life. You know what? He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. The the, the life of the Christian is not going to be accomplished by more physical regulations. You cannot regulate yourself into righteousness. It is going to be accomplished by your confidence in the living Son of God. Paul says this, verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Now, frustrate here, we think of frustrate. I'm so frustrated. We think of an, a feeling of irritation. But frustrate means literally to break or to interrupt, hence to defeat or to disappoint, to balk or to bring to nothing. As to frustrate a plan, 
design, attempt to frustrate the will or purpose. It means to make null or nullify or to render of no effect. He says, I'm not going to treat God's grace like it's useless. If we can be saved by performance, then Jesus shouldn't have died. That's what he says, verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, if you can just conform and shore yourself up with what God demands, then Christ is dead in vain. He died for no reason. If you can be saved by performance, then he wasted his effort coming to earth and taking your penalty. Amen? Uh, this is, this is, this is the, the issue at hand. They were being taught, you put confidence in your performance of God's law. Paul says, no, you put your confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. It has to do with, am I going to trust my ability or his? Am I going to trust my goodness or his? Am I going to trust my righteousness or am I going to trust his? May I say this? We'll get into godly living because the accusation against this belief by those who reject it is, well, it's a license to sin. It's anything but. No, no, no. If I'm dead to sin through Christ, why would I want to go back and live that way? And so then tonight, see an appropriate confrontation, an absolute conviction leading us to an applied conclusion. If I can be righteous by the law, then Christ died in vain. And so, friend, that is so true. If my performance is what makes me righteous, then why did he come? If I can work myself out of sinfulness and into righteousness, Jesus is nothing more than a token story in a book that can't be trusted. And so then tonight, thank God that we're saved, we're justified. I love that Bible word. Justified, God keeps it so simple, by one thing, faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. 